One of the most beautiful and glorious and heartwarming titles given to the people of God is the bride, the lamb's wife. But how could we lowly, sin-stained human beings ever qualify to be a part of the bride, married to the eternal bridegroom? Find out on this episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity. It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. True followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are referred to in Revelation 21 as the bride, the lamb's wife. But how could we ever qualify? How could we ever become pure enough, holy enough to be married to the king of all creation and in essence be the queen of eternity, reigning with him forevermore? How can we lowly human beings ever ascend to such a status. The best way I have of explaining that and answering that question is by taking you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church that's made up of, I'm sure, some good people, but there were a lot of people that had a very questionable past in that church. And he said, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, the King James says, espoused, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's absolutely a miracle that you could obtain the status of being part of this corporate body of people referred to as a chaste virgin unto Christ. In the natural, if a person ever loses his or her virginity, it can never be regained. Once it's gone, it's gone forever. That's why you should be so careful to guard that part of your life. But spiritually, evidently, that's not the case because we were all defiled by the world. If in no other way we were defiled by the transfer of sin and a death status, the contamination of death from Adam and Eve that went down to all of their offspring. And all of us have had faults and stains within that uh, would definitely prevent us from being married to the king of all creation forever. We're stained. We have been contaminated and polluted with sin. But because of the grace of God, because of the mercy of God. God doesn't just forgive us. He blots out our iniquities as if they never happened. That's what justification is all about. To be justified means to be legally acquitted of all guilt, just as if we never sinned. Can you imagine that? So we have received through the blood of Jesus, that washes us whiter than snow, a restored virgin status. Because of that, we are a spouse to the bridegroom. We are in the engagement period 
We are betrothed to one husband, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. However, it's very curious that the New Testament also, at the same time, symbolizes the people of God in a married status. We are engaged or betrothed to him now, and this is the time of betrothals where we're pursuing the bridegroom. Yet at the same time, God uses the symbol of a marriage relationship. In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. And so, Romans chapter 7, verse 4, depicts us as a married wife. So, which is right? They're both right, because God uses different aspects, different details of both relationships to symbolize different things we will experience in our relationship with him. Just like an engaged wife is just enamored and overwhelmed with affection and love toward the bridegroom, and she can't wait for the day when she makes her vow and says, I'm yours forever. I do. Well, that kind of passion should fill our hearts right now, waiting for that ultimate day of ultimate union when we're married to him in absolute oneness at the resurrection from the dead. But also, the symbol of marriage is a present tense experience because uh, Romans 7, 4 said we are married to him who was raised from the dead that we might bring forth fruit just like a married wife brings forth children for her husband. So likewise, we bring forth fruit unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We multiply our faith in others and we share the gospel and bring others into this relationship. So, God uses both relationships to depict what he's doing in us. But it's interesting to see that God uses many human relationships to depict different aspects of what we experience in our relationship with him. For instance, and I have a list of nine here. Number one, we are citizens under the rule of the governor over all nations. Number two, we are referred to as laborers working the fields of a heavenly husbandman. Number three, we are servants serving under the authority of a master. Number four, we are soldiers enlisted in the army of the captain of our salvation. Number five, we are disciples following the instructions of an all-wise teacher. Number six, we are brothers and sisters of an elder brother, the firstborn son of God. Number seven, we are sons and daughters in the family of God, and we are uh, respectful and reverential toward our heavenly father. Number uh, eight, we are a bride, as I mentioned, espoused to the bridegroom, betrothed to the bridegroom, but we are also a wife, married, to the king of all creation. Once again, let me emphasize each one of those human relationships brings forth an important revelation of the relationship we experience with our Savior, our Redeemer, 
And really, that's another relationship because the Redeemer was one who loosed someone from enslavement because of their indebtedness and caused them to be free. So our Redeemer has brought us to himself in many ways, and we experience many different qualities of of relationship in our journey with him. I have heard some people say, and be really strong in asserting this, that some Christians are in the status of being servants of God, and that's kind of a lesser status, a subordinate status, to those who are on a higher level of being part of the bride because they're more passionate. They seek God more intensely. They fast. They pray. They sacrifice more uh, to be in an intimate relationship with him. But I would dare to say that anyone who is actually a born-again, blood-washed son or daughter of God fills both roles, and they fill those roles simultaneously. I am a servant of the Most High God. Moses referred to himself as the servant of God. And I don't mind at all referring to myself as the servant of God. What a privilege, what an honor. But at the same time, I believe I'm part of the bride. Again, it's something that happens simultaneously. Even in the Old Testament, watch this. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14, listen to what God said to those who were falling away. He said, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Well, Jesus is bringing us all back to that heavenly city, Zion. But even here in Jeremiah 3.14, God speaks of backsliding people, those who are falling away into the grips of the world, who are not as passionate as they should be about their relationship with God and remaining faithful to the Torah and faithful to their covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He refers to them as being married to him. And that was before the born-again experience was available. He was married to them on a different level. He was married to them by covenanting with them and choosing them as a nation. And even when they were falling away, they had that internal potential of walking in that kind of intimacy with God. And just like if I put an acorn in my hand, I could say this has the potential of being an oak tree. Or if I had a cocoon, this is something that has the potential of being a butterfly. And yet in both cases, the the cocoon is a temporary death um, where that little caterpillar cuts itself off from the world outside so that it can emerge as a butterfly. And that acorn has to go into a temporary state of death, falling into the ground and dying. So its potential can be awakened. So also there's got to be a death to self before we can truly in a manifest way, walk in this inheritance. I believe even the backslider 
that's once known God is still married to him, still married to the bridegroom, and he will pursue them until they get back right with him and come back into a fervent and passionate relationship with him. It's all about that. It's all about love. It's not about religion. It's all about a love relationship. You should read the Song of Solomon. I read it for two years over and over and over again at a certain point in my life because God really laid it on my heart. And it awakened within me the realization that God is in love with his people. As a bridegroom is in love with a bride, he's in love with his people and we should respond to him with a similar kind of love. It's not serving God out of fear. It's not being bound to certain rules and laws and afraid of breaking those laws because of the consequences that should happen. We should not have a fear-based religious experience. It should be a love-based experience. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's an automatic outcome of love. If you really are walking in a bride mentality, you want to please him. You want to keep his commandments. You want to be right with him and clean. What woman getting married would walk into the ceremony with muddy splotches all over her dress. How absurd is that? And how absurd it would be for you and I to claim being a part of the bride of Christ and yet have muddy splotches on our soul because we're not committed to the degree we should be. I love the eighth chapter of the Song of Solomon that kind of finalizes the whole story. It's a beautiful story of how she finds the bridegroom, and then she loses sight of him and pursues him and finally uh, regains that relationship. And then in the eighth chapter, the daughters of Jerusalem ask the question, uh, who is this that comes out of the wilderness leaning on the arm of her beloved? (laughs) If there's anything this wilderness world has taught me, It's taught me to lean on the arm of the beloved, the bridegroom, knowing his loving commitment to us. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That means a love that lasts through all the battles, all the trials, all the ups and downs of life, all the failures, all the times of regaining ground. He said, I have loved you. I have loved you. Not I am or I will, but From eternity past, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And the wilderness teaches us to lean on him in realization of that. And then the bride says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. And that's true. When you really get a revelation of the bridegroom's love for you, and the love that should be awakened in you for him, many waters cannot quench love. In the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, the uh, devil is depicted as a great red dragon, and he spews out of his mouth a flood of waters to drown the woman and the remnant of her seed that have the testimony of Jesus Christ and keep the commandments of God. So what comes out of the mouth? words, and there will be a flood of deceptive words and delusions and 
perverted ideas that will flood the world in these last days. And the enemy is doing that to try and drown the woman and the remnant of her seed. But the earth helped the woman and the earth swallowed up the flood that came out of the dragon's mouth. So those that are outside of a covenant relationship will drink in all of this deception, but the elect will not be deceived. Thank God for that. Now let me read you two wonderful passages in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. They shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain. I can't think of a day where I don't feel pain inside, emotional pain, mental pain. And it's hard to fathom. It's hard to comprehend a place, a time, an experience of heaven to such degree that there's no more pain. And yet that's our destiny. Then in verses 9 through 11 of the same chapter, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. How strange it is, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, the voice said to John, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And when he turned to look, he saw a lamb. Now the angel says, come and I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he turns to see this spectacular wife of the almighty God and sees a city. So God is always speaking to John in deep symbolism. Why does God refer to the holy city? as his bride. And who is included in this bride? That's a very important question. What criteria must be fulfilled in order to be a part of the bride? Well, I believe God represented the bride as a city because he's married not to the city so much, but to the inhabitants of the city. A city is just an empty shell of uninhabited buildings with no emotion attached to it if no one lives there. And so God's not just married to some spectacular, radiant, eternal city, but to those who dwell there. And that's, of course, a reference to the bride of Christ. Let me give you a passage of scripture from Isaiah 62 that uses this same kind of symbolism, verses 1 through 5. For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest 
until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. And then verse 3 says, You shall be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, nor shall your land be termed desolate. Now here it is. But you shall be called Hathzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. This is a prophecy about Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God. And of course, God is speaking in a futuristic sense about new Jerusalem to come and the kingdom to come. And he says, new Jerusalem will be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and will be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. And uh, of course, of course, it's the people inhabiting that city that God is delighted to be in a relationship with. And your land will be called Beulah. Well, the celestial world that we will be a part of will be Beulah land which means married, because I believe in that realm, God will marry himself to not only the people that inhabit that world, but uh, everything that's a part of that world, the flowers, the trees, the hills, the mountains, it will all be saturated with the presence of God. And so God says, as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons shall marry you. And he's speaking to the holy city, New Jerusalem. He says, your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so God will rejoice over you. So the sons of God marry the holy city and the God of, of heaven marries the holy city. So within that city, we are united forever. That's Isaiah 62 verses one through five. And it would do you well to, to go back and read that carefully, prayerfully, meditate on it, and you'll see the beauty of the symbolism. And now let me bring out who is included in the bride and what criteria must be fulfilled to be a part of this bride. Now I'm going to go into the details of the holy city, New Jerusalem, every aspect of it, the walls of Jasper, the streets of gold, and many other things, the gates of pearl on the next episode. But I do want to bring out this episode because it underscores what I believe, that all of the redeemed of the Old Testament were in Abraham's bosom when Jesus descended into the lower worlds and preached the gospel to the dead. And that's when they were born again. And that's when he led captivity captive and they were carried into paradise, into the third heaven, to be a part of the bride forever. And all born again, blood washed, spirit-filled children of the Most High God in the New Covenant are destined to be married to him forever. So I believe all who have been in a covenant relationship with God, both Old Covenant and New Covenant, will be a part of the bride forever. And that's symbolized by the foundation of the holy city that is found in the book of Revelation. Listen to it closely. And it's also symbolized by the gates to the holy city. The 12 foundations of the holy city are named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 
gates to the city are named after the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So can you see how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant merged together into this one city? And Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He'll certainly be a part of that city. And all the children of Abraham who walked with the God of Abraham. So the gateway into the city was connected to the Old Covenant. The 12 gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel because they came in through the Old Covenant into this relationship that ultimately would be on the foundation of the New Covenant. And what would happen because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why the 12 foundations of the Holy City have the names of the apostles of the Lamb. And it could be 12 successive foundations, or it could be 12 stones fused together into one foundation, which would be similar to the breastplate of the high priest. And I tend to believe that's the 12 foundations, that they're all on one level, and they're all fused together as one. And that's the foundation of the holy city, New Jerusalem, the bride, the lamb's wife, the message, the gospel that the early apostles preached. Now, I've finished what I want to share on this podcast, but we're going to keep continuing this theme next week on what it is to be the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, don't forget, don't forget that I have another podcast called Revealing the True Light, and I want you to partake of the information that I share on that podcast. It's all about comparative religions and more than ever, you need to be armed to give an answer to every person why you believe Jesus is the only way. And you'll learn that on Revealing the True Light. And also, if you're listening to this podcast in an audio format, you can also watch it on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Mike Shreve Ministries. We'd love for you to see all that we offer on our YouTube channel. So thank you for joining me, and I hope it was a blessing to you. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.